Section 14 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July 2012. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 14, Chapter 13, Part 6. But being sensible that the smallest pretense would suffice to make Edward retract these detested laws, which, though they had often received the sanction both of King and Parliament, and had been acknowledged during three reigns, were never yet deemed to have sufficient validity, they insisted that he should again confirm them on his return to England, and should thereby renounce all plea which he might derive from his residing in a foreign country when he formally affixed his seal to them. It appeared that they judged a right of Edward's character and intentions. He delayed this confirmation as long as possible, and when the fear of worse consequences obliged him again to comply, he expressly added a salvo for his royal dignity or prerogative, which in effect enervated the whole force of the charters. The two earls and their adherents left the Parliament in disgust, and the king was constrained on a future occasion to grant to the people, without any subterfuge, a pure and absolute confirmation of those laws which were so much the object of their passionate affection. Even further securities were then provided for the establishment of national privileges. Three knights were appointed to be chosen in each county, and were invested with the power of punishing, by fine and imprisonment, every transgression or violation of the charters, a precaution which, though it was soon disused as encroaching too much on royal prerogative, proves the attachment which the English in that age bore to liberty, and their well-grounded jealousy of the arbitrary disposition of Edward. The work, however, was not yet entirely finished and complete. In order to execute the lesser charter, it was requisite, by new perambulations, to set bounds to the royal forests, and to disaforest all land which former encroachments had comprehended within their limits. Edward discovered the same reluctance to comply with this equitable demand, and it was not till after many delays on his part, and many solicitations and requests, and even menaces of war and violence on the part of the barons, that the perambulations were made, and exact boundaries fixed by a jury in each county to the extent of his forests. Had not his ambitious and active temper raised him so many foreign enemies, and obliged him to have recourse so often to the assistance of his subjects, it is not likely that those concessions could ever have been extorted from him. But while the people, after so many successful struggles, deemed themselves happy in the secure possession of their privileges, they were surprised in 1305 to find that Edward had secretly applied to Rome, and had procured from that mercenary court an absolution from all the oaths and engagements which he had so often reiterated to observe both the charters. There are some historians so credulous as to imagine that this perilous step was taken by him for no other purpose than to acquire the merit of granting a new confirmation of the charters, as he did soon after, and a confirmation so much the more unquestionable, as it could never after be invalidated by his successors, on pretense of any force or violence which had been imposed upon him. But besides that this might have been done with a better grace if he had never applied for any such absolution, the whole tenor of his conduct proves him to be little susceptible of such refinements in patriotism, and this very deed itself, in which he anew confirmed the charters, 
carries on the face of it a very opposite presumption. Though he ratified the charters in general, he still took advantage of the papal bull so far as to invalidate the late perambulations of the forests, which had been made with such care and attention, and to reserve to himself the power, in case of favorable incidents, to extend as much as formerly those arbitrary jurisdictions. If the power was not in fact made use of, we can only conclude that the favorable incidents did not offer. Thus, after the contests of near a whole century, and these ever accompanied with violent jealousies, often with public convulsions, the Great Charter was finally established, and the English nation have the honor of extorting, by their perseverance, this concession from the ablest, the most warlike, and the most ambitious of all their princes. It is computed that above thirty confirmations of the Charter were done at different times. To return to the period from which this account of the charters has led us, though the king's impatience to appear at the head of his armies in Flanders made him overlook all considerations, either of domestic discontents or of commotions among the Scots, his embarkation had been so long retarded by the various obstructions thrown in his way that he lost the proper season for action, and after his arrival made no progress against the enemy. The King of France, taking advantage of his absence, had broken into the Low Countries, had defeated the Flemings in the Battle of Furness, and made himself master of Lyle, St. Omer, Courtrai, and Ypres, and seemed in a situation to take full vengeance on the Earl of Flanders, his rebellious vassal. But Edward, seconded by an English army of fifty thousand men, for this is the number assigned by historians, was able to stop the career of his victories and Philip, finding all the weak resources of his kingdom already exhausted, began to dread a reverse of fortune, and to apprehend an invasion on France itself. The King of England, on the other hand, disappointed of assistance from Adolf, King of the Romans, which he had purchased at a very high price, and finding many urgent calls for his presence in England, was desirous of ending, on any honourable terms, a war which served only to divert his force from the execution of more important projects this disposition in both monarchs soon produced a cessation of hostilities for two years and engaged them to submit their differences to the arbitration of pope boniface boniface was among the last of the sovereign pontiffs that exercised an authority over the temporal jurisdiction of princes and these exorbitant pretensions which he had been tempted to assume from the successful example of his predecessors but of which the season was now past involved him in so many calamities and were attended with so unfortunate a catastrophe that they have been secretly abandoned though never openly relinquished by his successors in the apostolic chair edward and philip equally jealous of papal claims took care to insert their reference that boniface was made judge of the difference by their consent as a private person not by any right of his pontificate and the pope without seeming to be offended at this mortifying clause proceeded to give a sentence between them in which they both acquiesced he brought them to agree that their union should be cemented by a double marriage that of edward himself who was now a widower with margaret philip's sister and that of the Prince of Wales, with Isabella, daughter of that monarch. Philip was likewise willing to restore Guienne to the English, which he had indeed no good pretense to detain. But he insisted that the Scots and their king, John Balliol, should, as his allies, be comprehended in the treaty, and should be restored to their liberty. The difference, after several disputes, was compromised by their making mutual sacrifices to each other. Edward agreed to abandon his ally, the Earl of Flanders, on condition that Philip should treat, in like manner, his ally, the King of Scots. 
the prospect of conquering these two countries whose situation made them so commodious an acquisition to the respective kingdoms prevailed over all other considerations and though they were both finally disappointed in their hopes their conduct was very reconcilable to the principles of an interested policy this was the first specimen which the scots had of the french alliance and which was exactly conformable to what a smaller power must always expect when it blindly attaches itself to the will and fortunes of a greater that unhappy people now engaged in a brave though unequal contest for their liberties were totally abandoned by the ally in whom they reposed their final confidence to the will of an imperious conqueror though england as well as other european countries was in its ancient state very ill qualified for making and still worse for maintaining conquests scotland was so much inferior in its internal force and was so ill situated for receiving foreign succours that it is no wonder edward an ambitious monarch should have cast his eye on so tempting an acquisition which brought both security and greatness to his native country but the instruments whom he employed to maintain his dominion over the northern kingdom were not happily chosen and acted not with the requisite prudence and moderation in reconciling the scottish nation to a yoke which they bore with such extreme reluctance warren retiring into england on account of his bad state of health left the administration entirely in the hands of ormsby who was appointed justiciary of scotland and cressingham who bore the office of treasurer and a small military force remained to secure the precarious authority of those ministers the latter had no other object than the amassing of money by rapine and injustice the former distinguished himself by the rigour and severity of his temper and both of them treating the scots as a conquered people made them sensible too early of the grievous servitude into which they had fallen as edward required that all the proprietors of land should swear fealty to him every one who refused or delayed giving this testimony of submission was outlawed and imprisoned and punished without mercy and the bravest and most generous spirits of the nation were thus exasperated to the highest degree against the english government there was one william wallace of a small fortune but descended of an ancient family in the west of scotland whose courage prompted him to undertake and enabled him finally to accomplish the desperate attempt of delivering his native country from the dominion of foreigners this man whose valorous exploits are the object of just admiration but have been much exaggerated by the traditions of his countrymen had been provoked by the insolence of an english officer to put him to death and finding himself obnoxious on that account to the severity of the administration he fled into the woods and offered himself as a leader to all those whom their crimes or bad fortune or avowed hatred of the english had reduced to a like necessity he was endowed with gigantic force of body with heroic courage of mind with disinterested magnanimity with incredible patience and ability to bear hunger fatigue and all the severities of the seasons and he soon acquired among those desperate fugitives that authority to which his virtues so justly entitled him beginning with small attempts in which he was always successful he gradually proceeded to more momentous enterprises and he discovered equal caution in securing his followers and valor in annoying the enemy by his knowledge of the country he was enabled when pursued to ensure a retreat among the morasses or forests or mountains and again collecting his dispersed associates he unexpectedly appeared in another quarter and surprised and routed and put to the sword the unwary english every day brought accounts of his great actions which were received with no less favor by his countrymen than terror by the enemy 
all those who thirsted after military fame were desirous to partake of his renown. His successful valor seemed to vindicate the nation from the ignominy into which it had fallen, by its tame submission to the English, and though no nobleman of note ventured as yet to join his party, he had gained a general confidence and attachment which birth and fortune are not alone able to confer. Wallace, by having many fortunate enterprises, brought the valor of his followers to correspond to his own, resolved to strike a decisive blow against the English government, and he concerted the plan of attacking Ormsby at Schoon, and of taking vengeance on him for all the violence and tyranny of which he had been guilty. The justiciary, apprised of his intentions, fled hastily into England. All the other officers of that nation imitated his example. Their terror added alacrity and courage to the Scots, who betook themselves to arms in every quarter, many of the principal barons, and among the rest Sir William Douglas, openly countenanced Wallace's party. Robert Bruce secretly favoured and promoted the same cause, and the Scots, shaking off their fetters, prepared themselves to defend, by a united effort, that liberty which they had so unexpectedly recovered from the hands of their oppressors. But Warren, collecting an army of forty thousand men in the north of England, determined to re-establish his authority, and he endeavoured, by the celerity of his armament and of his march, to compensate for his past negligence, which had enabled the Scots to throw off the English government. He suddenly entered Annandale, and came up with the enemy at Irvine, before their forces were fully collected, and before they had put themselves in a posture of defence. Many of the Scottish nobles, alarmed with their dangerous situation, here submitted to the English, renewed their oaths of fealty, promised to deliver hostages for their good behaviour, and received a pardon for past offences. Others who had not yet declared themselves, such as the Steward of Scotland and the Earl of Lennox, joined, though with reluctance, the English army, and waited a favourable opportunity for embracing the cause of their distressed countrymen. But Wallace, whose authority over his retainers was more fully confirmed by the absence of the great nobles, persevered obstinately in his purpose, and finding himself unable to give battle to the enemy, he marched northwards, with an intention of prolonging the war, and of turning to his advantage the situation of that mountainous and barren country. When Warren advanced to Stirling, he found Wallace encamped at Cambus Kenneth, on the opposite banks of the Forth, and being continually urged by the impatient Cressingham, who was actuated both by personal and national animosities against the Scots, he prepared to attack them in that position, which Wallace, no less prudent than courageous, had chosen for his army. In spite of the remonstrances of Sir Richard Lundy, a Scotchman of birth and family, who sincerely adhered to the English, he ordered his army to pass a bridge which lay over the Forth. But he was soon convinced by fatal experience of the error of his conduct. Wallace, allowing such numbers of the English to pass as he thought proper, attacked them before they were fully formed, put them to rout, pushed part of them into the river, destroyed the rest by the edge of the sword, and gained a complete victory over them. Among the slain was Cressingham himself, whose memory was so extremely odious to the Scots that they flayed his dead body and made saddles and girths of his skin. Warren, finding the remainder of his army much dismayed by this misfortune, was obliged again to evacuate the kingdom and retire into England. The castles of Roxburgh and Berwick, ill-fortified and feebly defended, fell soon after into the hands of the Scots. Wallace, universally revered as the deliverer of his country, now received from the hands of his followers the dignity of regent or guardian under the captive Balliol, 
and finding that the disorders of war, as well as the unfavorable seasons, had produced a famine in Scotland, he urged his army to march into England, to subsist at the expense of the enemy, and to revenge all past injuries, by retaliating on that hostile nation. The Scots, who deemed everything possible under such a leader, joyfully attended his call. Wallace, breaking into the northern counties during the winter season, laid every place waste with fire and sword, and after extending on all sides without opposition the fury of his ravages as far as the bishopric of Durham, he returned, loaded with spoils and crowned with glory, into his own country. The disorders which at that time prevailed in England from the refractory behavior of the constable and marechal made it impossible to collect an army sufficient to resist the enemy, and expose the nation to this loss and dishonor. But Edward, who received in Flanders intelligence of these events, and had already concluded a truce with France, now hastened over to England, in certain hopes by his activity and valor, not only of wiping off this disgrace, but of recovering the important conquest of Scotland, which he always regarded as the chief glory and advantage of his reign. He appeased the murmurs of his people by concessions and promises. He restored to the citizens of London the election of their own magistrates, of which they had been bereaved in the latter part of his father's reign. He ordered strict inquiry to be made concerning the corn and other goods which had been violently seized before his departure, as if he intended to pay the value to the owners and making public professions of confirming and observing the charters he regained the confidence of discontented nobles having by all these popular arts rendered himself entirely master of his people he collected the whole military force of england wales and ireland and marched with an army of near a hundred thousand combatants to the northern frontiers nothing could have enabled the scots to resist but for one season so mighty a power except an entire union among themselves but as they were deprived of their king, whose personal qualities, even when he was present, appeared so contemptible, and had left among his subjects no principle of attachment to him or his family, factions, jealousies, and animosities unavoidably arose among the great, and distracted all their counsels. The elevation of Wallace, though purchased by so great merit, and such eminent services, was the object of envy to the nobility, who repined to see a private gentleman raised above them by his rank, and still more by his glory and reputation wallace himself sensible of their jealousy and dreading the ruin of his country from those intestine discords voluntarily resigned his authority and retained only the command over that body of his followers who being accustomed to victory under his standard refused to follow into the field any other leader the chief power devolved on the steward of scotland and common of badenoch men of eminent birth, under whom the great chieftains were more willing to serve in defense of their country. The two Scottish commanders, collecting their several forces from every quarter, fixed their station at Falkirk, and purposed there to abide the assault of the English. Wallace was at the head of a third body, which acted under his command. The Scottish army placed their pikemen along their front, lined the intervals between the three bodies with archers, and dreading the great superiority of the English in cavalry, endeavored to secure their front by palisados, tied together by ropes. In this disposition they expected the approach of the enemy. The king, when he arrived in sight of the Scots, was pleased with the prospect of being able, by one decisive stroke, to determine the fortune of the war, and dividing his army also into three bodies, he led them to the attack. The English archers, who began about this time to surpass those of other nations, first chased the Scottish bowmen off the field, 
then poured in their arrows among the pikemen, who were cooped up within their entrenchments, threw them into disorder, and rendered the assault of the English pikemen and cavalry more easy and successful. The whole Scottish army was broken, and chased off the field with great slaughter, which the historians, attending more to the exaggerated relations of the populace than to the probability of things, make amount to fifty or sixty thousand men. It is only certain that the Scots never suffered a greater loss in any action, nor one which seemed to threaten more inevitable ruin to their country. End of section 14. Chapter 13. Part 6.